Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. If you were to pick up a copy of the Washington Post this morning or to uh, look at it in its digital form online, you would find two major stories uh, prominently displayed in the Post. Uh, The first is an interview with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who has made headlines beyond the Washington Post, New York Times, the major networks, uh, cable channels, uh, because he's now really fighting back and standing by the way the election unfolded in Georgia, despite what he calls misinformation and lies that have been spread about the integrity of the election by uh, President Trump and by uh, some of his uh, uh, most ardent supporters, including Doug Collins, who is working with uh, the Trump campaign on challenging aspects of the election here in Georgia. Um, And Raffensperger really, really goes after both Doug Collins and... U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham, and we'll talk a bit about what all of that uh, is about uh, as we get the show underway today. Uh, The other story that's getting attention from the Washington Post has to do with a private phone conversation that was um, put together by the uh, Republican National Senate Campaign Committee Uh, in which Kelly Leffler and David Perdue are quoted by anonymous sources, particularly David Perdue, as expressing concerns that President Trump's ongoing uh, challenges to the election uh, may not be in the best interest of the Republicans who are trying to win this runoff election. So we're going to talk about that and more on the show today, including the fact that the hand recount, the so-called audit of the election, is coming close to a finish, and so far... There doesn't appear to be any significant change in the results, with the exception of something that happened up in Rome, and we'll talk about that as well. So, we got a lot to talk about on the show today. We start with Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who's my partner for the show on Tuesdays. Tamar, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, We have enough to keep us busy for the next few weeks, don't we, Tamar? (laughs) Certainly, earning those paychecks for the next seven weeks. (laughs) We're also joined today by uh, Professor Amy Steigerwald. You know Dr. Steigerwald as a a professor of political science at Georgia State University and a frequent panelist on the show. Amy, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Uh, Edward Lindsay is back with us, former state representative from Atlanta, now uh, the head of the Georgia uh, arm of the um, government relations practice at Denton's. Edward, I believe Denton's is the world's largest law firm. How are you, Edward? (laughs) Uh, It's always a pleasure to be here, and I believe you're right. I believe that we are the world's largest firm. You know, I haven't told you this, but I actually got an email from somebody who challenged that a couple of months ago who pointed to, uh, I think, revenues as opposed to number of uh, partners and associates in the firm. And I don't remember what that email said was larger, but I don't believe that for a minute. We know you you work for the world's largest law firm. 
<laughs> Thanks for and, being and, here, Edward. Thank you. Edward, always a pleasure. Go ahead. No, always a pleasure. Um, we're also really happy. To, okay, we're very happy to be joined uh, for the first time by Representative James Beverly uh, of Macon. Uh, Representative Beverly, uh, we wanted to have you on, uh, first of all, because you do represent a, a district in Macon, and we're always interested in hearing what's happening in middle Georgia, but also because you have just been elected the minority leader in the State House of Representatives. So congratulations, I think, on being elected <laughs> minority leader, but thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. I, very quickly, as long as um, we're introducing you, I want to read a quote that you gave uh, upon your election to that post. You said, in this time of high political tension, at the same time as ordinary Georgians have shown a willingness to cross party lines to vote for leaders who share their values, I look forward to turning the temperature down in our politics and supporting the values that Democrats and all Georgians share, like the belief that people who work hard for a living should not have to live from paycheck to paycheck, and that no one should have to choose between putting food on the table for their family and taking the kids to the doctor. It's a lovely statement. Do you believe that right now uh, you're going to have some success in being able to lower the temperature in an extremely toxic political environment? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the good news is, you know, we're not at the uh, top of the, uh, the trash heap, if you will. Uh, you know, Republicans, as you know, Ed, uh, Lindsey, and I are, are dear friends. He was uh, the minor- majority leader uh, when uh, when I first got to the General Assembly. But the level of vitriol that's going on right now within the Republican Party is like they're eating their young. And so let's let the dust settle. I think when we get back to the State House, I have a, a, a really good relationship with the Speaker. Um, I think we'll be fine, uh, but we got to let this, you know, cycle play itself out. Trust the process, but you know, enough is enough, and we would call on the wisdom of those guys who are on the other side of the ledger. They're like, you know, start dialing this back a little bit. Let's get down to the business of doing Georgia's work. Well, it's a sentiment that I think an awful lot of people listening to this show would uh, celebrate, and I wish you all the best luck in making that happen. Um, Tamar, let's start with this Brad Raffensperger story. I'll read to you what the Washington Post, which was the news organization that interviewed him, although certainly the AJC, GPB News, and every other news organization has picked up what he said. Here's the lead for the Washington Post story. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger said he has come to he's come under increasing pressure in recent days from fellow Republicans, including Senator Lindsey Graham, who he said questioned the validity of legally cast absentee ballots in an effort to reverse President Trump's narrow loss in the state. The normally mild-mannered Raffensperger saved his harshest language for Douglas Collins, Doug Collins as we know him, who's leading the president's efforts in Georgia and whom Raffensperg called, quote, a liar and a charlatan. This is getting very intense tomorrow. 
Yeah, no kidding. Um, you've really seen the Secretary of State in recent days take a, a little more of an aggressive um, approach to, to fighting what the Trump or the Trump campaign and, and some of his allies have been saying in terms of fraud and irregularities, and especially going after Doug Collins, who he's been calling a failed candidate in um, in Facebook posts and that sort of thing. But you know, you, you see these posts where he's kind of going after point by point exactly some of the allegations made by the the Trump campaign and trying hard to save his reputation. But it's getting to the point now where looking ahead to 2022, you know, it, it seems like he's losing the Trump base there, which is going to be his same base, presumably, for, for re-election. And so he's kind of fighting for his uh, political reputation. And uh, it's tough when the, the president has gone on a war path against him and in his Twitter feed calling him a, a rhino, Republican in name only. So tough road ahead. Um, Edward, let me just, and I'll, I'll get you in here, uh, uh, point out what's going on with Doug Collins. We talked about it on the show yesterday. Doug Collins over the weekend uh, uh, spent some time on Fox News. And uh, one of the things he said, as he has uh, pushed this in other f forums too, he is arguing that the signature, uh, there's that, that, the, that, that the governor and Raffensperger entered into an agreement with uh, Stacey Abrams' organization that changed the requirements for signature matches on absentee ballots that uh, Collins and President Trump has tweeted uh, are allowing for fraudulent votes to be cast. And uh, what's interesting is that the president went after uh, Governor Kemp as well, saying that he and the Secretary of State entered into this agreement that is now leading to fraudulent election. That's what I mean when I say this is getting more and more intense, Edward. Well, I'm going to let uh, Brad and, and Doug fight between themselves. Um, I consider both of them a friend, but to sort of drill down to the facts, and, and ultimately we got to look at the facts here. Uh, first off, regarding fraud, of a statement regarding the, our election system. Over the last 15 years, we have developed a system in Georgia that is more open, uh, that is more and more secure than we've ever had before. And, and that's just the bottom line. And the attack on the absentee ballots, it, it's beginning to look like here a, a game of whack the mole where, well, first we, we were questioning whether or not the uh, electronic voting system was accurate. Well, as the audit has gone through the process, it's it's more and more apparent with a hand to hand with a hand count um, that that the electronic voting system appears to be very accurate. So now folks are beginning to sort of take a look at absentee ballots, and and the fact of the matter is that absentee ballot system uh, is, is is a secure one in Georgia. Uh, if you look at the rejection rates that took place in 16, 18, and 20, when it comes to the narrow issue of filling the forms outright and having the proper signature, the percentages are not too far apart in terms of the numbers that are getting rejected. The total number uh, of absentee ballots is much higher this year than it's ever been before. Uh, for one simple reason, people are dealing with a pandemic situation and are, are a lot of folks are afraid to show up either early voting or, or same-day voting and want to do it by absentee. The reason why more Democrats have utilized it than Republicans uh, this year is in large part because the president chose in his own uh, infinite wisdom 
uh, to demonize the absentee ballot process. The irony here is that, you know, I've been around long enough and I was in the House long enough, so I remember when Democrats used to attack the absentee ballot system because Republicans used it more uh, than Democrats did. And now we have a reverse of that. The fact of the matter is absentee ballots is, is a secure system, and it is something that more and more people are going to utilize in the days to come. And it's up to both parties to come up with, if there is any kind of flaws in there, to work on, on making it a, an easy process. They have tried to do it this year. And, you know, the, the shame of it here is that we actually, between June, when we had the difficulties we had in our primary and in November, we had some remarkable changes take place that made the system better. We, uh, for instance, permitted folks to apply for absentee ballots online. We developed a system in which uh, folks could track their their absentee ballots from the time of application to the time of receipt by the local government. So we came a long way uh, in a very short period of time, and and we need to recognize that fact. Uh, and and I think, quite yeah. frankly, right. moving on, Senator Purdue may, has a, has a point. We need to move on and start focusing on the September, rather the January 5th uh, Senate uh, elections. James? Yeah. So, I, you know, here's part of the issue. We just spent $150 million on these, on these new machines. Uh, it was vetted. It's funny that uh, Doug Collins would now be talking about the architecture of Stacey Abrams as it relates to an election linking up with, uh, you know, Raffensperger and Kemp when part of the idea around fair fight and fair count was the fact that we just wanted votes to be counted. And, you know, there was two years ago, there was a, a heck of an election where there are many people believe that Stacey Abrams won. Why would they be in cahoots now? It's just foolishness. And so, you know, at a certain point, you know, one of the things that I really admire about Ed is he calls balls and strikes, and this time has been no exception. And we got to call balls and strikes right now. Listen, the president has a self-serving agenda. Doug Collins needs to, you know, bail as soon as possible and let Georgians get back to business. And it, enough is enough, guys. And so, um, Ed, do what you need to do, man, and to, you know, <laughs> bring your buddy Doug Collins into space. And uh, I think we should move on, man. All right, Amy, let me get you into the conversation because the Doug Collins-Raffensperger feud is bad enough. But, man, Raffensperger and Lindsey Graham are now really going after each other tooth and nail. Raffensperger told the Washington Post that he got a call from – uh, uh, Graham, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, of course, uh, late last week, in which he says that Graham questioned the state's signature matching law and whether political bias could have prompted poll workers to accept ballots with non-matching signatures and asked Raffensperger whether he had the power to toss all mail ballots out in counties found to have higher rates of unmatching signatures. So Ravensburg is accusing Lindsey Graham of saying you should uh, basically dump uh, any number of ballots that probably were cast for Joe Biden. Graham insists that's not the way the conversation unfolded, uh, but Ravensburger uh, sounds pretty sh- sure of what he thinks Lindsey Graham was trying to tell him to do. Amy? It's an incredibly important and severe um, allegation that uh, Secretary of State Raffensperger is leveling against Senator Graham and highly concerning. Um, In all accounts, right, the Secretary of State has done an excellent job in administering this election. Um, He has been praised for the transparency, particularly through the risk-limiting audit. 
uh, and the counts that were going on before that. Um, and there were a number of changes, right, that Georgia implemented to try to overcome the issues that we had, right? We, we, we had sort of an international level debacle back in the June primary, and there was a lot of efforts done to be able to solve that um, and to make sure that the processing went forward. And so part of it is sort of shocking on some level that there is so much attention being levied suggesting that there's issues with how Georgia did this election because, in fact, it really sort of for everybody on the ground here, it's sort of the opposite, right? We had very little issues. Um, if you wanted to, almost every single county has live streamed the risk limiting audit. So if you want to watch hours and hours of people counting ballots, you can. Um, they were open for the things. And so it is very concerning. And I think speaks more broadly to this question of what is the goal of trying to undermine the validity of the counts and of the election. And it's particularly an interesting strategy given that Georgia is also in the midst of a Senate runoff. And so part of what you need to do is to convince your own voters that they should turn out during that runoff. And if you are now telling them that uh, electoral integrity is at stake and that they should not perhaps vote or trust the system, that may actually have the opposite effect of suppressing turnout for your own side. Edward, uh, I, I know you want to jump in, and I want to get you in here now, and then tomorrow I really need you back in this conversation. But, Edward, what the heck is Lindsey Graham, South Carolina United States Senator Lindsey Graham, doing calling the Secretary of State of the state of Georgia to talk about the Georgia election? As a Republican, wouldn't you maybe want to suggest to Lindsey Graham to uh, uh, stay on his side of the border? I would suggest to everyone on both sides of the political process outside of Georgia, let Georgia uh, do this uh, for the reasons that I stated earlier. We have a, a pretty clean system. But I will also add, let me also add something else here. There is a silver lining to to the fact that we have certain lawsuits going on uh, in that unlike uh, what you see on, on social media, you actually have to prove things in court. You actually have to show up with evidence of some type of wrong having taken place. And for those who've been listening to the show for years, that you know that I represented, for instance, the lieutenant governor two years ago in the election a dispute in which folks were questioning uh, the, the results when he was running against Sarah Riggs Amica. Uh, trial court and then seven uh, Supreme Court justices found for the lieutenant governor, found that there was no evidence of any kind of problems with the election there. And, and the one good thing that we may have uh, happen here is by virtue of folks going to court, we're going to uh, flesh out, uh, you know, what are the simple conspiracy theories and what actually has certain legs to it. And then at the end of the day, uh, I expect that the results be upheld. I am increasingly concerned uh, with folks in the different election cycles on both sides of the political aisle. Uh, if you lose, you don't simply concede, congrats, thank your supporters and wish the winner well. You, you question the outcome of the election. Uh, that, that's a disturbing. So, um, um, Tamar, uh, let me get you back uh, jumping in here. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about all this is that there are partisan, there are 2022 elections that could be coming into play in the middle of all this, right? So, Doug Collins is already 
uh, angry at uh, Brian Kemp for not naming him to the open Senate seat that Kelly Leffler is now fighting to hold on to. And there is talk that Collins could very easily launch a gubernatorial bid against Kemp, a primary challenge in 2022. And so in that sense, it is possible lines are already being drawn over this issue of how the election has been handled by Raffensperger. Now, have I got that about right, Tamar? Yeah, certainly. And especially because it's looking like Trump is going to want to stay in the political universe, um, you know, once he uh, once he leaves the White House, you know, he's been floating this this prospect of running again in 2024, uh, perhaps starting a network to rival Fox News. And because of that, he still is going to be a very active player in Republican politics. And he still has this base that's extremely loyal to him and what he says. So you're seeing now in all these posts on Twitter where he's talking about, uh, you know, Raffensperger being a rhino, Brian Kemp, you know, being a rhino. I, I think the two of them are, you have to be concerned that if they, they get to be too much on Trump's bad side, he could back a primary challenger, somebody like Doug Collins or another loyalist, who could come and outflank them on the right and they could be toast in 2022. Um, and I think Trump does relish this role in being a kingmaker in Republican politics, so I don't think that bothers him at all. You know, James, you've also got, if you look across the building from where your chambers are downtown, uh, you've got a uh, the beginning of a feud between, uh, or the continuation of a feud between Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who went on, on uh, uh, CNN last weekend and said, you know, this election has played out fairly and incurred the wrath of the Trump supporters. Uh, and now David Schaefer, who ran against him for the lieutenant gov- governor's job, is sticking with the Trump forces in talking about a fraudulent election here. So you've got that dynamic playing out as well, a possible rematch between those two in 2022. It's really fascinating how this is not just happening today. It's looking forward. Yes. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think you hit it right. Nailed it. Um at a certain point, you, you know, as, as a Democrat in the state of Georgia, which is now blue, Edward Lindsay, um, <laughs> we are excited about what y'all are doing to each other. I mean, it's like a race to the bottom. And <laughs> step up, like, all right, great. You guys have at it. And then let's get back, let's get back to K-12 and higher ed. And let's deal with some real criminal justice reform, health care, taxes, the economic mobility of Georgians. Let's deal with COVID. So while these guys are actually going at each other, which is, you know, it's it's great political um, theater, it's time to stop. I mean, but keep it up if you want. <laughs> you know, Edward, uh, that's a, you made that point yourself when you first uh, uh, re- responded to one of my questions, which is, uh, to some extent, the Republican runoff is getting lost in all of the commotion about how Brad Raffensperger handled the election. There's plenty of time to get it back on track, but it is not off to a good start when uh, this is all going on, Edward. Well, yeah, uh, there is a distraction, and and it needs to be resolved. And the good news is that the election will be certified in Georgia at the end of this week on the 20th, and that the Electoral College will meet in early December. And I fully expect uh, by that time, if not before, for us to have full attention on both sides uh, to be on the Senate race. I mean, uh, you know, you're already seeing uh, folks on uh, from the national side coming into Georgia to start campaigning for their particular favorites uh, on both the Democratic and Republican side. That will only intensify. 
uh, now that the U.S. Senate is on the line. So, yeah, there is, uh, and I'm sure my friends on, on, on the Democratic side are, are enjoying watching this food fight take place. But Republicans generally know how to fall in line and start focusing on elections. We do generally do a pretty good job of that. I will give my friend James a little bit of uh, warning here. Now that he's in leadership and he's going to have to be dealing with some difficult issues, uh, it's, it's not too much different between being accused of being a rhino and a dino. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, start uh, seeing how long it'll be before somebody on, on your left wing starts accusing you of that, James. I, I, you know, I don't wish you ill, but I do predict that at some point that's going to happen. Uh, that's, the, that's the burden. Uh, of hey, Amy, I got to get to a break, but let's just let's just pick up for a minute, Amy, on what what uh, Edward said. We got to go back to the 2018 gubernatorial primary on the Democratic side. And we remember that Stacey Abrams came under some fire uh, Mm -hmm. for her willingness when she was in the job that uh, James Beverly is now taking on as minority leader for being too accommodating to Republicans. Uh, Amy, uh, we remember that quite well, and that's Edward giving a giving a little cautionary note to James Beverly <laughs> as he starts his new position, uh, Amy. <laughs> um, it is, and the reality of life is that, you know, you have to get any type of legislation that you want to get through the General Assembly or the U.S. Congress has to get a majority of votes, and the truth is, is most successful legislation is, in fact, bipartisan, right? There's negotiation, there's compromise, there is coming together on this. And one of the things that I've been most struck by is the degree to which at the General Assembly, sort of the normal kind of partisan fights on most legislation fall to the wayside. And so what I sort of hope is that we don't see um, these kind of broader divides coming into the to the General Assembly because of the rancor that's happening with the Senate runoff. I got to get to our first break of the show. Uh, when we come back, I want to dive deeper into the Senate two Senate runoffs, and I want to start when we after our break with a story that you just filed about an hour before we came on the air, Tamar Hallerman. We'll do that, but first, these messages. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. The AJC's Tamar Hallerman, the new minority leader of the Georgia House, uh, Representative James Beverly of Macon, Professor Amy Steigerwald of Georgia State, and former State Representative Edward Lindsay all join me today. Uh, Tamar, as we take another look deeper into the Senate races, as I said about an hour or so ago, you and, I guess, Bluestein filed a story that I think the fair starting point for this was a week or so ago when former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang said that he and his wife were going to move to Georgia to try to work to help Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff win their uh, runoff races. He did not say he was moving here, to the best of my knowledge, to establish residency and vote. I think he made it clear he was coming down to work on their behalf. Nevertheless... 
That was interpreted by Republicans in a far different way. How has this all developed? Well, you're seeing it now from, you know, David Perdue and, and Kelly Loeffler on down, um, and, and including the attorney general's office and the secretary of state's office, who in recent days have sent out really terse statements warning people, uh, you know, it's a felony to move to Georgia with the intent of just voting and then leaving, and that they would use the full extent of the law to, to prosecute people. Um, as you said, you know, with Andrew Yang, he, he did not make clear in his original Twitter post on November 7th that, that he wouldn't, you know, that, that he was going to change his residency. A couple days later, he tweeted and clarified he was not going to be voting here. But still, the, the damage was done. And, you know, the, there were some social media followers of his who were mulling, hey, maybe we should move to Georgia so we can vote. The voter registration deadline is on, on December 7th. But you saw a bunch of Democrats, including Stacey Abrams, who were saying, look, please don't move here. Like, we could use, we could use your money. You can volunteer from wherever you are, but don't um, bother doing this. You're going to create headaches for everyone, and here are other ways to volunteer. But already it's creating a, a, a little bit of a political storm, and it also kind of feeds into this, this um, narrative that you see from, from Purdue and Leffler about out-of-state forces, especially from more liberal parts of the country, who are trying to come into Georgia and change the way of life here. Uh, they talk a lot about socialism, but this sort of feeds into that same kind of category as well. Um, Amy, it uh, it really didn't help that uh, Senate U.S. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer uh, made the kind of exuberant comment, which has now been picked up in an ad by uh, Republicans in Georgia, uh, saying, uh, "You know, we won Georgia, and uh, next we change the country," uh, which has been picked up by Republicans uh, to mean the radical socialist agenda is marching forward if uh, the two Democrats are elected in Georgia, Amy. Campaign ads are always fascinating to watch and to see what people are accusing the other side of, um, you know, bonds. It, it, it goes back for years and decades. Actually, there was a 1950 uh, Gallup poll that asked people how whether or not they attributed socialism to the Democratic Party. Um, that was, of course, coming around the time of right after the New Deal and things like that. So it's a continuing thing. I think the bigger question is sort of going back to Tamar's story is about this real question of how to address the Senate runoffs, about how best to present this. Um, because I think what you're partly seeing is Democratic leaders saying, no, wait, right, this isn't out-of-state forces. This is us, right? This is Georgia, and we need to confront the fact that Georgia itself has potentially changed and wanting to get that out. I think the other issue is that there's also campaigning in the midst of a pandemic, and we've definitely seen sort of two different views of how that should happen from each of the parties. And I think we're continuing to see that as we get into this runoff of whether or not a sort of lots of rallies and going door to door is the best option or um, more of a sort of digital virtual um, version of this. And so I think that's going to be interesting to see. The final thing I'll note is what I do find most interesting is that both groups of senators have now decided that they're basically running as a single ticket. Um, I sort of mm. less surprising that we saw that was Ossoff and Warnock. Um, there was some question, I think, of whether or not Purdue and Leffler were going to join together um, in that same way. Um, and so it's interesting, I think, that they have, because, again, Leffler's going to have to do some work to try to bring in um, Collins voters uh, from after a really nasty primary. Uh, let me do this. I know everybody wants to jump in. I want to give James a chance in here and then get back, give it back to uh, uh, both Edward and Tamar. 
James, uh, how do you, as you approach this runoff election, see the uh, longstanding belief uh, that Republicans, and, and it's backed up by much evidence, that Republicans are better able to energize their voters and get them out for runoffs? I mean, that's a daunting obstacle to overcome. It, uh, it, how do you do it, James? Yeah, I think there's, um, I mean, right now there are 30 counties or so in Georgia that are blue, and you have different regions. And so we can't, Atlanta's not just blue. You got East, uh, you know, got East Georgia, Warren, Hancock, Baldwin, Jefferson. You got Southeast Georgia, Chatham, Liberty. You got those places in Southwest Georgia, you know, Stewart, Sumter, Macon, Randolph County. You got a ton of counties out here that we need to activate. And quite frankly, the reality is, is one of the best gifts that we have, there are two, uh, really two men, two names, Donald Trump. Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham is the biggest outside influencer in the history of Georgia politics who tried to come in not only just to vote, but to throw away votes. Now, Democrats, if nothing else, are fair. Got a big tent. You like everybody coming in. You don't like is outside meddlers like a Lindsey Graham saying to Georgians, let's throw out these votes. I think people are going to respond to that. We'll activate that network. And I think we're going to have positive results as a result of that. And so I'm ready for this. This is so Edward, uh, Lindsay, keep doing what you do, man. You got to keep fighting, keep bringing outside influencing, and we'll get it done. Thanks, Ed. I appreciate you, brother. <laughs> well, if I can respond to that, yeah, I, I do want this, this, this race decided by Georgians on, on both sides of the political aisle. And while historically Republicans have done better in these sort of general election runoffs, uh, I do, I will freely and quickly uh, state that this is a historical time and that, uh, you know, you, you, you put aside whatever's happened in the past and you focus on this. And, and the fact of the matter is, the, the, in this particular race, uh, it has become, even though Georgians need to be the ones to make decisions, it is nationalized because a lot obviously rides on the fact that the, whoever has the majority in the U.S. Senate will be dependent on how this race turns out. The Democrats have chosen a, a, a page out of Stacey Abrams' playbook, quite frankly, in which they have put aside what they used to do, which was pick someone who was a centrist Democrat and, and run them statewide, and instead chosen uh, the two most liberal folks in the respective primaries, uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, both of whom are admirable people. I'm not here to question the character. But I do want to state very clearly that they are very much left of center. And the question isn't whether or not Georgia is purple, but whether or not Georgia has truly gone into the liberal category. And I just simply don't think that's happened here. I think that we are still a, a center-right state. And I think in the end, you're going to see them prevail. I do think Georgia is still more red than, than, than blue, but a little bit with a purple hint to it. But if you look at all those statewide races, put aside the presidential race, and you look at the fact that Purdue outperformed Ossoff by 80,000 votes, someone like Jason Charum for PSC won without a runoff, all the way down the line, Republicans generally did better uh, statewide this year than Democrats did, with the exception of the presidential race. And let's face it, President Trump is an entity unto himself. <laughs> Tamara? Oh, go ahead. 
piggybacking off of what Ed said, this is, of course, a nationalized race. And this is a race that's all about turning out your base rather than winning out new voters. And few lines of, of messaging have been more or as, as potent as this message that there are outsiders challenging your way of, of life um, who are infiltrating the state. And that's worked very well in past years for, for Republicans. I'm thinking the, the Karen Handel, John Ossoff contest in 2017, where she framed Ossoff mm-hmm. as, as a puppet for Nancy Pelosi. Um, that's a version of, of what's happening right now um, for Republicans. And I, I think it, it works really well for them. Um, you know, Democrats can use a, a similar argument, just as Representative Beverly was talking about with Lindsey Graham, with with Donald Trump, using that kind of boogeyman um, argument as a way to, to kind of drive voters to the polls, because nothing often works better than, than fear. All right. To expand upon this question about whether Republicans have a natural advantage in runoff elections here, uh, let's look at that other story from The Washington Post that I mentioned at the top of the show. The headline, Amy, is Republicans sound alarm on Georgia Senate runoffs as they privately weigh Trump's influence. The lead says Republican leaders are increasingly alarmed about the party's ability to stave off Democratic challengers in Georgia's two Senate runoff elections, and they privately described President Trump on a recent conference call as a political burden who, despite his false claims of victory, was the likely loser of the 2020 election. As I said at the top of the show, this was a, a call for donors, a private call sponsored by the NRSC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Purdue and Leffler were on the call, um, and uh, David Purdue is quoted by the anonymous person who reported this to the Post saying this, what we're going to have to do is make sure we get all the votes out from the general and get them back out. That's always a hard thing to do in a presidential year, particularly this year, given that President Trump, it looks like now, may not be able to hold out. We're assuming we're going to be standing out here alone, uh, suggesting the president will lose uh, the election. That's something that David Perdue certainly isn't, or Leffler, certainly not going to say publicly yet. No, there's a very delicate dance that has to be done right now, because on the one hand, their, to be perfectly blunt, best argument is to say, right, as I think we've heard um, Senator Leffler say, that there's a firewall, right, against the Biden administration to protect the Senate and try to stop sort of the worst excesses that the Biden administration might try to propose. The problem is to make that argument you have to then acknowledge that President Trump lost the election and is not, in fact, going to be the president in the next time. And so it's a hard thing to be able to sort of straddle those lines. The other thing that they're confronting is that in many ways that President Trump is not on the ballot. We therefore know that getting to high turnout in runoff races, right, particularly following a presidential election, is always difficult to try to turn out. And so there's this interesting thing of whether or not there will be, um, on the one hand, people sort of motivated by this idea of sort of for the Republican side being this firewall, or if in fact they're going to be dissuaded from turning out because we've also got all the attacks going on, on the integrity of the system of people believing that it's a hoax, of not believing it, of sort of putting in that, and how it is that President Trump is going to continue influencing Georgia voters, both in sort of spurring Republicans, but also potentially spurring Democrats as he continues with these attacks 
um, and also, frankly, attacks on the leaders of the state who come from his own party. And so there's a lot of sort of moving parts here that no one really knows what that's going to mean. Uh, I think Edward, Amy, you get the last word before a break. Yeah, Amy has a point, but I, I want to point out to, to our listeners that this is sort of an ebb and flow in terms of, of articles that we're seeing nationwide. We're also seeing articles in which uh, national Democrats are wringing their hands about the fact that, that there is perceived leftward shift, uh, which will make it more difficult for them to win in Georgia. Uh, you know, and, and, by, and then you have the situation where folks are, com- are concerned about uh, the president's continuing fight about the election hurting Republicans. So we're going to go back and forth like this through November, but I truly do believe that come December, both sides are going to be focusing on the Senate election and what's going to happen in Georgia. All right. I got to get to a break. And Edward, you're absolutely right. There is a very robust debate going on in the Democratic Party about whether the more progressive influences in the party, in fact, hurt Democrats in down-ballot races across the country. I don't argue with uh, that at all, and it's something we should talk about on this show. I, but I bring up these two Washington Post articles today on the other side of this because it was David Perdue who made the comments about the president being perhaps a burden and Kelly Leffler apparently uh, worrying about the same thing. So I just want to be clear, we're not choosing certain articles over others. And I think you know that, Edward. I mean, didn't infer that. What I'm simply saying is that we're going to be seeing this back and forth. That's all I was saying, Bill. Um, okay. I think that you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Let me do this. Let me get to our final break of the show. We still have a lot more to talk about on Political Rewind. As we get back to our conversation today, um, we are, of course, talking to Representative James Beverly, who is now the minority leader in the state house just elected. I just want to quickly make note of the fact that Democrats on the Senate side of the building have uh, elected uh, Senator Gloria Butler to succeed Steve Henson as minority leader. She becomes the first woman to be elected to that uh, position. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see uh, Gloria Butler in that new role. James Beverly, uh, you at the beginning of the show when we introduced you, I, I read that uh, very uh, kind of lovely statement you made about it's time for us to learn how to work together. But one of the most important tasks that you are going to be asked to play, I think, as minority leader, is leading the Democrats in efforts to stave off a redistricting process in which there's no question the Republican majority is going to try to take back territory especially in the northern metro area that has gone over to Democrats with uh, uh, Lucy McBath in the 6th District, uh, now Carolyn Bordeaux in the 7th in some legislative districts. Uh, how, how difficult is your task going to be when Republicans still dominate both houses of the General Assembly and how do you begin formulating a plan for trying to protect as much territory as you can? That's a great question. I mean, the, the number one thing, I think the one thing that will come out of our side will be one word. You can count on it. That's transparency. Is you got to start with transparency. And if we start there and we start looking at communities of interest and looking at some of those counties that I mentioned, and really, you know, we got to get this outside influencing of lying to win, cheating to win, and stealing to win. If we can keep that out of the way and start really looking at communities of interest across the state of Georgia, I think we'll be in good shape. 
The one thing I would say is that down in the south, uh, southwest part, southeast part of Georgia, you don't have enough population. And so just by natural selection, uh, you, some of those counties are going to cannibalize one another. And as we look at the maps, we got to see where this natural selection goes. I mean, nobody wants a, a I-75 corridor map. And so, Ed, if you're advising those guys, please tell them don't do that. Uh, so what we want to really make sure is that, that we have regional uh, opportunities for people to actually have uh, communities of interest uh, in mind when we draw these uh, maps. Well, uh, I, I hear you, James, and um, I want to remind our, our listeners that in all the years since the Voting Rights Act was passed, only one decennial map authored by the General Assembly was ever accepted by the Justice Department, and that was the map that the Republicans passed in 2011 that was accepted by the Obama Justice Department. But if I can dare say give some advice, which is uh, work with the other side uh, on this. I think one of the mistakes that uh, Democrats made in 2011 is for whatever reason, I think they were influenced by national Democrats to simply uh, say no and not come to the table. And I think that did hurt uh, a, a lot of Democrats as a result of that. But they were hoping that the Obama administration would back them up and they didn't in the end. Uh, but, uh, but your tendency to, to try to try to work across the aisle, I think will be tested in redistricting, but I think both sides will need to do so in order to make an honest map. Uh, you don't want to have what happened in 2001 uh, with those maps, uh, which were ultimately thrown out. And the party that tried to do that uh, was ultimately harmed at the polls by the people. So folks can see when, when parties overreach and or try to get too cute. But to another point, a more detailed point, a lot we always talk about Republican and Democrat in, in redistricting. But a lot of times it's, it's not about Republicans and Democrats. It's about your closest political ally who lives in a district right next to yours. And suddenly, because of a population shift, you two suddenly find yourselves in the same district or start carving into each other's district. That's the interesting process hey, on redistricting. Amy, one of the things that's going to be fascinating to watch, uh, this next redistricting process, based on the, the census that we've just completed, is this is the first time we will see new lines drawn where after the Supreme Court overturned preclearance, said that the Justice Department no longer has a role in examining whether districts have been drawn fairly, have been drawn with racial bias in mind, and that uh, gives the uh, majority party in any state uh, that was covered by preclearance an enormous advantage in basically doing what they want to do. It does. And so I think that's why there's going to be a lot of attention um, that's focused on it. I think that's why Representative Beverly is sort of bringing that up as one of the big issues that they're definitely going to be addressing this year. And that's also going to be addressed everywhere um, because it's not just, and I think it is important, right? It's the drawing both of the state assembly lines, but also the congressional district lines. And so we're going to see sort of a redrawing of that, a determination um, and a real sort of drilling down of where it is that people are moving to and moving from and how that is sort of shifting where those spots are. And it's a difficult thing to do. There, there's a lot of trade-offs that come into it. And I think one of the things that um, Representative Beverly mentioned that was also sort of important is that there's also this real issue of are you drawing lines sort of for yourself, right, the person who's actually sitting in that seat, or are you drawing it uh, more broadly for the citizens or in, for your party, and how are, we making, how are you making that choice, and, and what are the 
things that go into it. So there's nothing that's easy about it. And so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. James and then Edward, I want to give you both a chance to weigh in on this before we uh, are, are finished with the show. But James, uh, we, we certainly know that uh, partisanship drives reapportionment, whether it's Republicans or Democrats in charge. When Roy Barnes was governor of the state, uh, his administration uh, came under enormous criticism for the uh, de- Democratic lines that they drew, in many cases, very strange, bizarre lines. Uh, so it's not just a Republican matter. But but still, James, um, I'm curious, and maybe we haven't had, you haven't had a chance to examine this yet. When it comes to legislative races, there's a lot of work that uh, the majority party can do to redraw in their favor. But now that we look at the northern metro Atlanta area, are there still enough republic? Can you still carve out districts up that way that would take seats away from, uh, say, a Lucy McBath and a Carolyn Bordeaux? Or are they running out of votes, the Republicans up that way? I think I think that uh, they are running out of votes. And who do you sacrifice? Uh, someone's going to get sacrificed. If you start fooling around in that corridor, where do you get population down in South Georgia? I mean, they're, they're going to have to have some real conversations with one another. And then we're going to be honest brokers on our side of the ledger. Listen, we want to have fair maps for Georgians. But in order to do what they need to do to protect people, they're going to sacrifice some of their young. And I think that they need to think through that long and hard before they start carving it up. So I think we'll be in good shape. Uh, we'll see where it goes. Uh, a slight caveat to, to what Amy was saying is that while, yes, preclearance is gone, the Voting Rights Act is still in place. And so if there's over overreaching taking place, uh, there are still protections underneath the Voting Rights Act in which people can bring a lawsuit. What folks need to remember, for instance, is, is that the 2001 map that Roy Barnes and the Democrats uh, drew uh, was not thrown out through preclearance. It was thrown out through a subsequent lawsuit uh, that went to court. Yes. And, and that avenue is still available to either side in any state. Uh, where the other side feels, where they feel the other side has gone too far. And and it has been used in other states. And I do expect that to keep folks on both sides of, of the aisle uh, between the lines. And that's something that needs to be done. Both sides need to stay between the lines. You know, you know, Amy, just to take a little piece of history for a moment here, uh, many people, of course, say that Roy Barnes lost re-election because he changed the flag. Certainly that played a role. Mm-hmm. But in districts, in, in, in legislative districts across mostly South Georgia, there were many uh, Republican representatives who argued strongly that Roy Barnes was taking away their uh, a fair vote by ha- having such a strong Democratic uh, redrawing of the maps. And, and that, too— played some role in uh, voters deciding that they felt there was a tyrannical force up there in the governor's office. Um, Certainly. I mean, I think the other side of it is, is he also greatly upset teachers um, who that was one of the big elections where they sort of turned out in force um, to really sort of express their thing. But I think the bigger point of it is, is that as we sort of go through is that it's this real interesting question of trying to figure out What does the state look like, especially one where we're seeing an increasing sort of rural-urban divide? All right. I've got to give you the last word, and I don't mean to cut you off, but we are completely out of time. Representative James Beverly, Tamar Hallerman, Amy Steigerwald, Edward Lindsay, I'm so glad you were with us for a terrific conversation uh, today. As we leave, I'm going to take a moment of personal privilege here. I want to wish my daughter, Emma Pearl, an incredibly happy 
birthday. She's home from Brooklyn, sheltering in place with us in Atlanta. And that isn't the best way to celebrate a birthday in your mid-20s with us instead of friends. But boy, we sure are glad we get to be with her while she celebrates this day. That's it for us today. We're back with another Political Rewind tomorrow. I hope you'll all join us then. Uh, Until then, please take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and as ATC host Ricky Bevington says, get a flu shot. See you all tomorrow.